can't beat time in the word. They're especially valuable due to uh, Tyler Williams, uh, who Grant affectionately is calling Rabbi Randy, uh, here today to share with us. I love it, and um, you are too. Uh, this is going to be a special, uh, special treat. Very grateful um, for this opportunity. Could you, Josh? We're we're finally to chapter six, as far as finally not meaning that we were in a rush to get through all the others. But chapter six, you gotta just say it is just so packed full, as every chapter has been and will be. But um, how about praying for us, Josh? Maybe after you read one to seven. That may be a little aggressive today, but we're, uh, we possibly might get that far. But before uh, that, after Josh reads and prays, uh, Tyler is going to share with us kind of an overview of 1 to 5, which, is, uh, which will be thrilling. So, Josh, how about? Sure. <clears throat> what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we... Who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Father, thank you for another week to teach from the book of Romans. Thank you for giving us this book and the great truths that are found inside. Lord, I pray that the teaching today would be clear and precise, and thank you for allowing Tyler to be with us today. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I didn't do a very good job of introducing Tyler. Tyler uh, has been a, wow, how many years here, Tyler? About from the beginning, weren't you? Mm -hmm. yeah, yes. So. And, uh, and now at the Master's Seminary, um, graduated from Master's College, and now at the seminary. So so thankful for, uh, for Tyler, for his insights, for his uh, discipleship of all of us in the... In, um, the way he's poured into our church. And so just the two weeks that he and Victoria are back and uh, we happened to catch him for uh, signing him up early for, for Romans before anybody else could nab him. And his, can we post your email with that? Is that legal? Uh, which one, the one I sent you? Yeah. Sure, let me fix some spelling here. Okay, so, so, well, yeah. this, it had a lot of Greek in there which reminded me of the yellow sheet that Josh uses. The sixth graders uh, wonder if I'm writing Greek, but that's just bad handwriting. <laughs> and so Tyler had a little bit more Greek in uh, his email than that, but that's going to give you a an idea of what we have coming today. So, um, Tyler, how about an overview? Yeah. Um, so, as you know, uh, Paul writes Romans um, essentially towards the middle of the um, 50s AD. He's writing in a sense to where he's seeking to unify the uh, church body that is there. Um, about seven years uh, prior to 54 AD, um, the Jews were expelled from Rome. Um, and Claudius' edict ends when he dies. And so Jewish people are starting to come back into the Roman church. And so now there's starting to be some tension between the Jews and the Gentiles. And so Paul writes um, into this to where he seeks to unify 
the believers in the church to where the gospel can continue to advance forward. So Paul begins that way. Uh, you can kind of see that building where he appeals to uh, the Messiah being born of David in chapter 1, verses 2 through 5. And then he also speaks of how, in verse 5, the Gentiles are also among the faith. Uh, so already setting up this, this unity that is necessary moving forward. But yet, Paul also begins to unravel one of the most thorough explanations of the gospel message that we have in the New Testament. Uh, he begins essentially walking through with two main themes. Man's sin, chapters 1 through 3, and then 3 through 5 is God's salvation. And so within these two main themes, he's going to address key issues such as dealing with um, uh, hypocrisy from the Jewish people, uh, licentiousness or um, uh, pagan living with the Gentiles, walking through a thorough explanation of what sin is, how it's ultimately a rebellion against God. Um, he does this in uh, chapter 1, verses 9, 19 through 32. Um, really just hammering in the reality of our depravity. And that continues all the way through chapter 3, uh, verse 20, where really we're left with an understanding that without God, we are hopeless. We are utterly depraved. We may not sin to the degree that we could, but yet our entire being is tainted by sin in every capacity. And so Paul then introduces the great truth of the gospel in verse 21, uh, of chapter 3 and following, where he begins to unpack how Christ is our propitiation, how God is just and the justifier of the one who places faith in Christ because of the propitiation that Christ's uh, atoning sacrifice, uh, his death on the cross was as a public declaration of that. Um, and then he walks through with how you are able to obtain that salvation being primarily through faith. And we see that with two great examples of Abraham and David. And something I find very interesting is in chapter 4, verses 7, where he quotes from uh, David in the psalm. He says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose, sin, and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. And so here we see such a thoroughness to this justification by faith that not only are our past sins forgiven, verse 7, but our present and our future sins are also forgiven and will not be accounted to us, verse 8. So Paul's explanation of justification by faith in Christ is so thorough that it reaches from our past sins all the way to our present, giving us the great hope of our present realities and consequences in chapter 5, whereby which we have reconciliation with God and we stand and have peace with him because of Christ, who, while we were once enemies, loved us uh, immensely. So I think that would be a... That, no, that's so summary. good. Yeah, and... Uh, those that Tyler, it took us uh, six months where Tyler just did that in uh, in six minutes. Appreciate that, Josh. Anything to add as you head into chapter six? What's got you excited about chapter six? No, I think I want to ask Tyler two questions and then can I answer your question? Oh, yeah, um, you don't even have to answer my question. Yeah. If you're <laughs> I would be curious, Tyler, just maybe what are some things or one first question. What importance does the book of Romans have in the entire canon of Scripture? What unique contributions does it make? And then two, same question you're asking me, I'm asking you. <laughs> what uh, has been maybe personally gripping to you or has stood out to you from Romans? Yeah, that's a really great question, uh, Josh. Um, so we tend to think of God's sovereignty in the inspiration of Scripture, in that God chooses what, what is written. 
Um, but I think something that is often overlooked in thinking through the giving of Revelation is God's sovereignty over the delivering of that particular book in redemptive history, meaning that at a particular time, God chooses to write a particular letter by a particular author to a particular audience for a particular purpose, to advance his um, redemptive plan forward, meaning that if we don't have the book of Romans, our Bible is deficient. It, it's not complete. It's not whole. So we need Romans, and, and the church needed Romans. And so Romans' contribution to the canon, kind of what I alluded to at the beginning, there's a church in Rome or multiple churches in Rome that have some tension with a lack of unity. And we can understand the importance of unity just in looking at John 17 alone, where our Lord prays that the, that the church, his disciples, would be one, even as he and the Father are one. So to not seek unity in the church is to not only seek that which is of the greatest importance to the church, but also is to directly go against the desire and the prayer of the Son. And we know that he always prays in perfect harmony with the will of the Father. His prayers are perfect. He only asks that which is truly pleasing and holy. And we know that the Father is always going to answer the prayers of the Son. And so unity is a big deal um, for that. And so Romans is written by Paul um, between 54 and 58 AD, like I mentioned earlier, to the point of bringing unity to the church because when you look through the book of Acts, you see that the Gospels that go from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And rightly understood, um, the ends of the earth is essentially Rome because Rome is the connection to essentially the entire known world. So if Christianity fails in Rome, Christianity fails completely. It doesn't advance forward. It doesn't advance westward. So the fact that Romans was written, you can be very thankful and very blessed because if it wasn't for the book of Romans, you most likely would not be sitting here today trusting in Christ. Mm. It's because of the book of Rome, Romans that brought the church into unity, giving the church to uh, rally support around Paul to where he could go to Spain, which we know he didn't ultimately end up going to. However, the reason he, he writes such a thorough explanation of the gospel is so that believers would see its riches and its glory and rally around that to promote that to the ends of the earth. And so that's one contribution, I think, that uh, the book of Romans introduces. And then personally, just studying it um, over the years, I find that it is always a, a great book of assurance for me, um, just knowing the the reality that I cannot please God in and of myself, and I can only come to him through his son, Christ, and his work on the cross and his resurrection. And that not only gives me hope of the past work that has been done, but gives me current hope in how God's love is continuously poured upon me um, each and every day because of the sufficiency of Christ's atoning work. And that gives me great hope to move forward. And really, I mean, any chapter, I think Jerry says this about every chapter, every commentator seems to say it, every chapter is the best chapter. Um, and it just always continuously builds for me um, such a great joy and a, an appreciation for Christ and the gospel. That's great. Um, really good. On chapter 6, I think <clears throat> as I've been studying it this week, um, I was able to see with the help of some of the commentators, it really does fit into the argumentation from chapter 5 on. And Paul, in his typical teaching style, kind of introduces this question that he's going to answer and answer emphatically. 
And uh, so I think it's been it's been fun to kind of think a little bit more practically about fighting sin and think uh, about sanctification and the lessons Paul would have for us here and how we think about our relationship to sin and uh, how our union or unity with Christ factors into that and how it does give us great assurance for the future and and great hope in the future. And back to a little diatribe again, Miss Elizabeth. <laughs> we, we, he doesn't go along without a diatribe, does he, in, in Romans? And, it's, and it, I, I love them. What should we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Tyler, he's asking this fascinating question because, and uh, I was interested, a couple commentators said, Paul is being accused of antinomianism, like kind of, oh, you're in good shape, so kind of sin at will, right? That's going to increase some grace. We all think grace is good, so sin more, right? That's that's kind of the idea. And uh, and I, I was interested in reading, I think, Stott and Gordon Cranfield, somebody saying that um, if we're not accused of that, sometimes it may be that we're not thoroughly explaining how great justification is. And uh, like there's this fine balance here. Could you help us here? With uh, why is he asking this question directly, mm-hmm. or his I don't know, opponent, yeah. whatever we call him, and uh, and and tell us about kind of that fine balance. Yeah, I mean it's a direct relation back. If you go back to chapter five, verse twenty, um, Paul introduces that the law came in so that transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounds all the more, or superabounds. I think is one translation and. Then he goes on to say, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So it really gets at what you were saying, Jerry. If someone just stops at the end of chapter 5 and they completely misunderstand Paul's entire point up until that point, they're going to reason that, wow, grace is so great that I need to continuously to sin so that I can actually glorify God more. And so Paul is appalled at such a, a claim. So he introduces this objection, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that may, grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who die to sin still live in it? And so balancing the richness of justification, understanding texts like Romans 8, one, that there is therefore no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, we should boast in the richness of the gospel, in the richness of justification. In fact, chapter 5, we, we do boast in God. We boast in those things. However, justification misunderstood is going to lead you to an antinomian way of living, an anti-law way of living to where it doesn't matter what I do, I'm forgiven, where Paul clearly lays out justification is going to drastically transform who you are, and that's where we're going to lead through essentially the rest of the book, but especially here in chapter 6. Yeah. Can you, we've been at this uh, by no means, a thousand times no, my favorite, what a ghastly thought. What, tell us about that word from what you know and agree, because it's strong language, right? Yeah, it's, like, don't, yeah. don't you dare think like that. Isn't that it's Absolutely. Ridiculous. It's the strongest negation in the Greek language. Meganatoi, um, strongest negation. One of my favorite translations is what a ghastly thought. It's just utterly ridiculous. Yeah. Um, and so that's, again, the strongest language Paul can use to object to such a thought of continuing or abiding or remaining in sin in order that grace would increase. 
Good. Josh, any thoughts on that one? Yeah, can I just jump in and um, it ver- you see Paul, I think, really is responding to f- the possible accusation if you just left off at the end of 5. At verse 20, law came to increase the trespass where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So you could see how someone could maybe logically get there, possibly. Uh, but he does deal this fail blow to this objection. Uh, it's an, an emphatic rejection. Um, and he, he really is refuting that kind of thinking so that someone isn't misled into thinking that they have to persevere in sin, continue sin, abide in sin so that grace would abound. You know, it, the, Paul is going to show how being dead, we who have died to sin in verse 2, we can't still live in it. So his logic goes the other way and really... Uh, refutes that kind of thinking but it's interesting he goes back to his question style uh, to make his sort of uh, introductory point and then continues to unfold it in the following verses but another thing that was interesting to me was um, the importance of grammar and I think I noticed this from your notes even the um, aorist tense I'd be curious if you could elaborate on that but it's it's a it's not an exhortation here per se. It would be easy to read it like that, but it's an indicative of a declaration of what's already been done in verse 2. But could you help us with the grammar a little yeah. bit? Um, yeah, it's exactly what you, you mentioned, Josh. It's an aorist tense, uh, meaning it's a finite action in the past. It, it's settled, it's done. It would be the equivalent of, I mean, it, it's just finalized. It, there's, there's no arguing with that emphatic truth. Um, and in the fact that it's an indicative over an imperative uh, really indicates that this is a reality that the Christian has experienced in the past. There was a time where a Christian died to sin. And so because a Christian has died to sin, it is, one, absurd to think that you can continue in sin, but even more so that you will ever continue to move on and, and live in sin in the future, which is what we see uh, in the continuation of that verse in, in verse 2. Yeah, your notes were really neat, Tyler, on the difference of we die to sin to what was the other phrase that you were using? Do you remember? Dead to sin. Yeah, that we're dead to sin. Can you explain the difference, sir? Because this phrase Mm -hmm. is, I I found the commentators interesting as they were looking to help us, but Mm -hmm. then I think my favorite commentary was your notes. (laughs) That helped explain it maybe better than anything. Can you tell us? Because if we would say, hey, wait a second, we're dead to sin and that sin doesn't ever bug us anymore, then the next time we sin in the next five minutes, we'd be like, oh, maybe I'm not justified. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And I think that's one reason why Paul doesn't say, um, may it never be, how shall we who are dead to sin still live in it? But rather, he says, we die to sin. So two uh, points of this is being dead to sin would essentially... Um, denote the idea that sin no longer has any presence or relation to the believer because of justification. However, having died to sin, and, and a good question to ask is, what does it mean that you're, you, you have died to sin? And um, Schreiner and MacArthur draw out how it's dying to sin, not so much the, the presence of sin as much as it is the sphere or the power or the dominion of sin. You, you've been removed from that. And that's even seen more particularly when you dig into the original language of this particular verse is Paul uses the singular rather than plural, which denotes this overall concept of sin. And for Pauline theology anyway, sin is more than merely 
transgressing, transgressing against the law of God, breaking a commandment of God. It's, it's, a, it's rebellion or rejection of God all out. It, it is a, more, sin has this connotation of more of a force or a, uh, almost a personification in some of Paul's literature. And so, but we do see, if you look at verse 11, and we'll get to this next week, even so consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So Paul even does draw attention to the idea of being dead to sin, but it's more of a mindset. It's more of a, a considering yourself dead to sin because we have once died to sin. So Paul's going to argue throughout the rest of chapter 6 the remaining presence of sin. You see that in chapter 7 as well. And so to think, well, I sinned, so I must not be justified, Paul's going to unpack later in this chapter to show just because you sin doesn't mean that you're not justified but if you continue in sin, that is evidence that you are not justified. If you right. continuously live in that. Make it a practice. Right. Yeah. No. Josh? I think it's wonderful news. We're not under sin's oh. tyranny or dominion or realm. Uh, another commentator put it like this. We've died to sin's, sin's reign and rule. Like you said, it doesn't mean there will never be any sin, but we're not enslaved to it anymore. And that's the... The picture, sort of in the second half of chapter 6 that he points, but um, it's great news for us, I think. And I think it is the fuel for uh, our fight against sin and uh, in, in the process of sanctification. I remember last week, remember we talked about how I was one of those commentators said it was such a big deal, maybe the most important characteristic of a believer, to remember and to understand and to enjoy how much we're loved by God. Not how much we love God, although that's huge and important, but how much God loves us and that we're assured of that, that we know that. And I think here this is a cousin of that, that we can be assured that sin no longer will has to boss us around, right? It doesn't have dominion anymore. And that's past tense. That was done when you were justified at that moment. And so the idea, isn't it, Tyler, now is to... Let's act like who we are. Exactly. That's who we are, so let's act like it, right? Let's enjoy that. Let's act like that. Let's be who we are. And when we go back to sin, which chapter 7 is going to remind us we continue to do, I do what I don't want to do, and what I don't want to do, I do, we're acting unlike who we really are, incongruent with who we really are. Tower, what about this baptism? This is interesting. Some people make a big deal of it, and you're saying probably not the uh, um, focus of the passage, really. Yeah. Uh, if you read a number of commentaries, journal articles, there's a lot of people who argue that the main focus of this passage is baptism. You're and talking 3 and 4. I'm sorry. Is that right? Yes, 3, three and, and four. 4. Verses 3 and 4 where, where Paul says, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Um, there has been so much written on baptism, and the question most people ask is, is this baptism a physical baptism, where it's dealing with water, or is it dealing with a metaphorical baptism? Ultimately, I, th I think it's a non-issue, in that I don't think that's the point of the text. I think the, the main drive of the text is union with Christ, um, and then there's a few reasons to, to think this. One, uh, this is considered Paul's longest argument of baptism. 
and we get two verses and three mentions of baptism, uh, which to me, if this is going to be Paul's explanation of what baptism is, you would expect a little bit more. Um, secondarily, uh, baptism, it's one of the few verbs we have in the New Testament that is transliterated. It, it, if we just translated it as it should be in terms of being immersed or plunged or submerged, asking the question about what type of baptism is this wouldn't really arise. It would, you would see that more clearly being a focus of the union with Christ because it is us being essentially, or do you not know that all of us who have been immersed into Christ Jesus have been immersed into his death? Um, therefore, we have been buried with him through immersion into death so that Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father so we too might walk in newness of life. So I think that's the primary emphasis of this text rather than baptism. Um, but if you have to pick two, one of the two, physical baptism, um, and a lot of people make that argument because um, in the early church, conversion is so closely related to baptism, which is true. And there's definitely some sense in which Paul is thinking of water baptism as he writes. It would be hard not to use that verb and not think of that. However, the evidence, when you look at it, um, dealing with the baptism being taught here as a, a symbol of us dying and rising, which I think is a good practice for the church to do. I just don't think that is grounded in this because we really don't see that until even the second century um, being a prominent teaching and it's derived from this verse and rightly so in that regard but again I think the emphasis is union here yeah good Josh I think I got caught in the weeds a little bit on that section but when I read Tyler's this morning it was really helpful yeah no very <laughs> very helpful Tyler when you get to five to seven this is um, where he starts to kind of unpack this argument. Well, could you comment, though, on uh, 1 to 14? And I, I imagine typical Paul here a little mm -hmm. bit. 1 to 14 lays out a beautiful argument, a great argument. Well, Lord willing, get to that, the rest of it next week. Mm -hmm. And then 15 to 23, he almost argues the same thing mm -hmm. again to even more thoroughly convince us. Is that... Can you give us just a little bit on the 1 to 14 as relating to 15 to 23? Uh, Stott was really interesting on that. Yeah, I think it's, um, I mean, the only way I can really kind of articulate that is just simply looking at 1 through 14 as kind of building the foundation that's really going to lay out the practical realities of what this doctrine of unity with Christ it should look like in the everyday present life of a believer. And I think that's what Paul does in 12 through 23 is he's, it seems almost redundant and repetitive, but he's really building the argument that, mm -hmm. look, you're, you're, if you're united to Christ, your master is Christ. And if you're not, your master is sin. And that's going to be evident based on how you live, but also as an encouragement practically of Christian, you need to be one who actively and intentionally presents your members, your body to be a slave to God for righteousness. Yeah. And so that is really grounding here in the first 14 verses, I think. I really love the way you said God in his sovereignty not only gave us the truth of his word, but put it in the right order so that we could understand it, um, put it to, to practice. Could you tell us, in, in case we don't get to this next week, chapter 7, immediately following <laughs> chapter 6, with a whole different thought not separate mm -hmm. but a different emphasis 
Can you tell us how these relate? Yeah. Six and seven. I think seven, when you think of seven, it's primarily a Christian's relationship to the law. And chapter six is primarily a Christian's relationship to sin. And I, I think that before you can really understand uh, your relationship to the law being in Christ, or even your relationship to the Spirit in chapter 8, or God's plan, chapters 9 through 12, um, you really need to understand your relationship to sin. Because in order to properly obey the law, in light of justification, you need to understand that we have died to sin, we are no longer enslaved to sin, but we are enslaved to God, and that should motivate us to obey Him rightly. And I, I would see that as kind of being the two distinctions between 6 and 7. Yeah, good. Help us unpack five to seven. Yeah, um, for if we become, if for if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. So Paul continues an argument here in verse five. You can see that with the connecting word for. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, and again, this is through being united with Christ in joining in with his death and being raised with him and buried with him um, so that we might walk in newness of life. And if I can just mention uh, a few comments on that newness of life, Jerry, I think it will be really helpful in understanding 5 through 7. This newness of life is that which is really the way we ought to be walking and thinking is that which is forward-focused. In light of our coming resurrection, in light of the, the new heavens and the new earth reality that we're going to be living in, Paul is bringing that into our present, in that we ought to be living in such a way that it reflects and manifests the reality that we are going to experience in the future. And I think in light of that, knowing that it's a newness of life that we have because we are united with him in the likeness of his death, it gives us the guarantee that we're going to be in the likeness of his resurrection. Um, just a few thoughts on the union here. I want to read a few quotes, if I can, um, just dealing with unity with Christ. Um, I think it was so helpful. Beakey, in his systematic uh, theology, says that unity with Christ is the summary grace that undergirds all other graces. And he even goes on to say that for the Puritans, it was the unity, of, unity with Christ that was the supreme doctrine of our salvation in that all of our blessings flow from the uni union we have with Christ. In fact, he even quotes, um, to quote Beakey in his uh, Puritan theology, he says that for the Puritans, it is the union with Christ, not justification by faith, which is the chief blessing of Christian, that a Christian receives from God. Uh, thus, the union with Christ is that which enables us to receive all the benefits of Christ's work including justification, adoption, sanctification, and, quote, to have Christ is to have all. And Calvin even goes on to say that if you are outside of Christ, you have no hope at all of benefiting from his work of salvation that he sought to accomplish because it is only with him that we are beneficiaries of everything the gospel allows us to be partakers of. Um, and, and to me, it, it, this was such a an interesting study for me just to think through the union with Christ and that's not an area I think I've studied much in the past and allowed it to really impact in fact Sinclair Ferguson in his book um, The Whole Christ if you have it I think it's around page 46 if I remember correctly but essentially 
he raises the question of how do you think of yourself? How do you identify yourself? Do you think of yourself as a born-again Christian? Do you think of yourself as a child of God? Do you think of yourself primarily as just a Christian? And he, and he argues that for the early church, that wouldn't have been their primary thought. Their primary thought would have been, I'm in Christ. And Ferguson even goes as far to say that not to think of yourself or think of the union with Christ, he says, is an overwhelming, as the overwhelming dominant way in which we think about ourselves, he says that we are not thinking with a renewed mind in the gospel. And he goes on to suggest that the danger of this is essentially to remove and separate the person and work of Christ when they should be understood completely in union to where we would think that our benefit is outside of him. And so Sinclair Ferguson even goes as far to say that for a Christian, your, your main mindset ought to be on union, union with Christ because that is really going to govern the way you think about everything in the Christian life. Um, and I just thought that was incredibly helpful uh, thinking through that. Yeah, wow. I feel like I've downplayed that yeah, too. for many years yeah. since becoming a Christian. This is very helpful. And I can see how it's so impacting that when we think about that, right? And you said it, the indicatives oh. yeah, always come before the imperatives. Who we are in Christ then completely dictates and governs how we act and so the way Paul can you comment on that Tyler because Paul writes Ephesians is so probably almost all of his epistles are like that aren't they they're heavy on the front end on doctrine on who we are in Christ our own sin and then on the back there's commands Absolutely, yeah. That is a common trait within Paul's epistles. And in fact, we actually even see this in chapter 6. Verses 1 through 14 is primarily doctrine-based, primarily indicatives. And uh, verses 15 and following is primarily the imperatives, how we live this doctrine out. And this is vital for us to understand um, because our doctrine should determine our duty. Our doctrine, what we believe, should determine how we live. Our justification automatically influences our sanctification. Um, those who are not being sanctified, those who are not walking in godliness and holiness, there is every reason to doubt that that individual has been justified because you cannot separate the outworking of belief in true doctrine. Um, I mean, for the Jewish people in the Old Testament and New Testament, this is how their wisdom literature worked. Um, Proverbs and, and Psalms and even the book of James in the New Testament an example of this would be if I were to tell you I really, really believe eating healthy and working out is the greatest thing for my life. But I never eat healthy. I eat Doritos every night and I never work out. You would look at me and say, you do not believe that claim because you're not practicing that type of lifestyle. And so the same is true with the indicative and the imperative combination. If you truly believe the indicatives, that is going to move us towards living rightly in the imperatives to obey God where he has commanded us to obey him. I love it. I love Doritos too. Chapter 5 and cha or verse 5 and verse 7 um, 4. You mentioned this. We haven't talked about it since chapter 1 so I would love to hear your thoughts. Over and over right in, Rome, in Romans 
he starts, or the new verse that someone, wherever they put the verse, there is started with this word for or therefore. Can you tell us why Romans is packed with that? And because there were many moons under my belt before I even realized that that word was in there. Yeah, I think that's, Josh alluded to this, I believe, early on in Romans, um, that it's a, a, a really clear way of Paul extending and expanding his argument. Um, usually when we see the term for, it's, it's either a result clause or explanatory clause. It, it's that which is explaining what came before. So every time we see for or even therefore, it's a good idea to, to think through how does this verse connect with what's come prior. And so I would say that is, is probably one of the key markers of why Paul does that in Romans is because he's establishing essentially what he begins in, in verse 16 of chapter 1, that he's not ashamed of the gospel, that it's the salvation uh, that's offered as the righteousness of God, and he unpacks that essentially from 117, 118 all the way through the rest of the book. And you see that with a connecting word such as for. Yeah, good. We want to give you a chance to ask uh, anything from Tyler that you're curious about from anything from chapter 1 all the way to middle of chapter 6 here. Josh, um, what's your what's your thoughts here? Can I ask another question? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> uh, I'm just thinking about this doctrine of union with Christ. I mean, I think the Sinclair Ferguson quote you just mentioned would say maybe this is a really important thing for us to think on to consider ourselves to be in union with Christ. I mean, how would you say practically or, you know, moving towards application we can grow in our understanding or just maybe how we would even begin to think about applying that? Yeah, that's something that I think I haven't done well in recent years, and that's something that I'm trying to think through more now. But the first thing that comes to mind is thinking through even the way Paul applies this doctrine in, in 1 Corinthians where he, he speaks of um, sexual immorality with a prostitute. You know, he says, how can you join yourself to a prostitute? Because by doing so, you're joining the prostitute with Christ because of your union with Christ. And so when we sin, essentially in one sense, if you will, what we're doing is we're in one way inviting that union into that lifestyle or the lifestyle into that union and that does not harmonize at all uh, again the, the reality Paul paints here in verses 4 through 7 is an eschatological reality or a reality that is focused so primarily on what is to come for uh, in the future with our future resurrection and so Josh I think that thinking through practically how we can apply the unity we have with Christ is one we can just see that that should be, for a Christian, that should just be the greatest motivation, I think, to continue in faithfulness. Um, I mean, we represent Christ on the earth as ambassadors. We proclaim his word. And so to not walk faithfully is to essentially say Christ agrees with this lifestyle, um, which I think is just a, a blasphemous way of thinking. Um, in other ways, when we think of our unity with Christ, and this is something when we think through in, in verse 4, that when Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, you, you know, you can think through, I mean, Paul could have simply have said, through the glory of God. So why does he use the term Father? He, he would have communicated the same truth with God. 
But the fact that he uses Father is, I think, because of our union with Christ, he's drawing us closer mm. to that intimate, familial relationship we have with God, who is now our Heavenly Father, Christ our brother. And because of this union, we, ha- we are adopted into the family. We are joint heirs. Chapter 8, we are sons where we can cry out, Abba, Father, 8.15. And so one way, I think, just practically is we can come to the Father and come to Christ knowing that when, when, when God looks upon us, he sees his son because he is, he is the one that we are so connected with. His death is our death. His resurrection is our resurrection. His likeness is our likeness. His righteousness, our righteousness, our sin, his sin, in that he, we, we were crucified with Christ and therefore it is now he who lives in us. And that type of intimate relationship to me is one of the greatest outflowings of the unity with, with Christ. And so I think that's as far as I've gotten in my meditation on it. I'm still thinking through more on how this really fleshes out uh, in our lives on a day-by-day basis. It's a great question, Josh, because it's got to change the way we operate. I mean, when just with that list that you just went through there, what a, what a life-changing way and the right way to think. Anything that you are curious about that you got a minute or two. To, yes, sir. Quasi. Hey, um, I have a question. Um, but it, I don't know how long you'll be here. It's about Romans uh, 7. Okay. Um, so I think Jerry just asked, like, what was your view of this? Um, and I happened to say it last night, setting to the top of Mark. Um, there are many different views of this. I didn't know it was so controversial. Um, but I just wanted to know, how did you land on basically a Christian dealing with sin. And I ask that in light of, let's say, um, chapter 7, verse 14, where it mm-hmm. says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold on to sin. And then if you go to chapter 8, verse 8, chapter 8, verse 8 says, Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Right. So if Paul is if the view is Paul is a Christian and he's sold mm-hmm. under sin, then I, I just want to know, like, how... You know. Yeah, no, that's a really great question um, and a really good observation. Um, I would want to look into it a little bit more. Maybe we can discuss it next week. Um, but one, two things I would point out is the flow of the argument in chapter 7, primarily verses 14 through the end of the chapter, seems to be more in, re- in light of a Christian in that if you're an unbeliever and unregenerate, there's no desire you have of pleasing God, right? What you want to do is sin. You don't want to not sin. And so to harmonize that with chapter 8 and looking how those who are in the flesh cannot please God, one, I I think an example would be we need to look at how Paul uses the term flesh uh, or sarks. Um, It's a common term that just means uh, fleshliness. And so thinking of that, we would want to look at each individual context to see how is Paul using that particular term. Um, and I would argue in, in verse 14 through 25 of chapter 7 seems to be a, a slightly different focus or a nuance than chapter 8. And secondarily, um, when we look at just how Paul has written letters, um, here he's saying that he, he does what he doesn't want to do and 
uh, doesn't do what he wants to do. And then he calls himself, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the, the law of sin. I think Paul, what he's doing here is, one, he's confessing his own wretchedness, which is unlike a non-believer. Uh, an unbeliever isn't really going to confess their wretchedness in this type of language. And even by the time we get into Second Timothy, so as Paul advances in maturity of Christ, in Christ and in Christianity and sanctification, we see Paul's understanding and awareness of his sinfulness actually grows. It doesn't diminish. And so we see as Paul writes his letters, we see that as he writes, his understanding of sin is so much more profound of its reality because he's, he's growing in holiness. And as we grow in holiness, we're going to see the sinfulness for what it really is. And I think that is reflected in the language here. So those are just a few things I would point to, but I would want to look into it a little bit more to answer your question specifically for verse 14. Yeah, really good. Jesse. Uh, one thing that's been touched on today is uh, being Christ-like, representing Christ. Uh I one time heard David Jeremiah say the ultimate compliment for a Christian is to be mistaken for Jesus. That's our unity should be such that we are, Tower talked about being such a sound ambassador of Christ that, right. we're, that we're imitating him. I love the way Paul in... Uh, Scripture says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And none of us do that perfectly, but that we sure have the ability to please him now as opposed to before we were a believer and when we didn't have that ability. Yeah, that's for, that's for sure. Tyler, could you close us today? I wish we had another month uh, right here to um, bat this around. Been so good and rich. Um, but Mark has... Uh, equally good and rich from the same Bible here in a second from Matthew. So could you pray for us this week and then also for Mark as he gets yeah. ready to bring us to work? Father, thank you for your word. Um, thank you for its clarity. I pray that we would continue to meditate upon it today, that we would continue to meditate upon the unity we have with Christ and how that ought to influence how we live, that we are dead to sin and that we are to walk in newness of life. That is why we were buried and joined with the death and resurrection of your son. And so I pray that we would see ourselves as not only no longer enslaved to sin, but that we would see ourselves united to Christ that we are not just removed from the sphere of sin, but we are in a new sphere, in a new reality, and that that should dominate the way we think and the way we live, the way we interact, the way we interact with one another in the local church, that we would strive for unity, seeing one another as also a part of Christ, for Christ died for each of us. And so we thank you for that. We thank you for this coming week. Um, and we pray, Lord, that we would be blessed and enriched by the preaching today of your word through Matthew's gospel and that you would empower Mark to where he would preach faithfully your word and that he would preach with clarity and that we would be 
submissive to place ourselves under what your word teaches, that we may honor you in all ways of thinking, all ways of living, and all ways of speaking. It is in your son's name that we pray, Father. Amen. Amen. Lord willing, next week, Tower will be back, and um, we will be in verses 8 to 14.